Let me start by saying it's a great pleasure to be here today. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to present my work. My talk for today is entitled The Political Economy of Lawfare. I'm presenting not so much a work in progress as a concept in progress. I'm hoping you'll be able to help me flesh it out later. Mine is an inquiry into transitional jurisprudence. I examine the legacies of anti-liberalism in the adjudication of international crimes. More specifically, I focus on the use of traditional justice for the purpose of transitional justice, reflecting on the jurisprudence of crisis. My analysis is concerned with the case of Rwanda, but my findings are relevant beyond the single case. By illuminating the use of legal procedure for political ends, my research highlights the dark side of democracy and the rule of law. And I also have here, if you don't mind my distributing them, a couple of photographs um, from Rwanda which I um, use in my research as well. My research is interdisciplinary and I use a lot um, in this particular project participant observation in my research as well. And, and these are some photographs from 2002 that give an idea um, as to social life generally in Rwanda. You have a couple of images of detainees, a couple of images of everyday life and so on. And, and these are, um, as I said, featured prominently in my, in my writing as well. Now, 10 years ago, Rwanda was the site of radical evil. Incited by elements within the government, Hutu soldiers, militia, and ordinary peasants roamed the countryside for three months with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, the Tutsi ethnic group as such. In 2002, the then government of national unity led by the Rwandan Patriotic Front, formed so-called gachacha jurisdictions in an attempt to come to terms with all but the most serious crimes committed in the course of the 1994 genocide. The invention of the gachacha jurisdictions represents an innovative attempt by the Tutsi-led government to respond to the legacies of the genocide, which claimed the lives of more than 500,000 Tutsi and so-called moderate Hutu. It is a daring experiment in transitional justice. Consider the following statistics. And these data refer to the very first incarnation of these jurisdictions um, since the number of judges has been reduced. But I'm interested in the evolution of institutions, and this is how it began. The jurisdictions administered chiefly, or at least then, by the Supreme Court of Rwanda, now a different um, department has been formed, initially involved more than 10,000 courts 120,000 genocide suspects, 250,000 lay judges, and some 8 million Rwandans who have formed thousands of court assemblies, mainly in the countryside. For the first time ever in history is an entire population involved in the adjudication of genocide. The enormity of this institutional choice is even more apparent if you compare it to one of the most lauded responses to human rights atrocities, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa, which pales in size and scope and considered alongside the Gachacha jurisdictions. And of course, as you know, the TRC was embattled as well. Just imagine the contentious politics, as some people like to call it, involved in the deliberation um, of genocide cases in Rwanda. 
Now, in the language of Kenya Rwanda, gachacha means justice on the grass. You've probably heard a lot of this because it has been in the news and it's been lauded um, here and abroad as well, and I'll come to this in a moment. Um, it originally described an informal method of dispute resolution used to settle in a variety of guises civil disputes over property rights, family matters, and other community affairs. In the wake of the genocide, the interim government recast gachacha into a formal method of dispute resolution. And by focusing on the invention of these jurisdictions, I'm analyzing the making of lawfare, what Jeremy Bentham called an irregular system of warfare. My focus is on the rule of law as a political weapon. I should emphasize however, that today I present data primarily concerned with the evolution of this institution, not so much the effects, but I'll be happy to talk about the effects um, later on in, in my talk. Now, what I call lawfare is not new to the continent. It was a widely used instrument in the colonial toolbox from Lord Lugard, the inventor of indirect rule, onward. And John Komarov at Chicago, uh, he's an anthropologist and sociologist, um, was the first to use the term in passing uh, in connection with colonial rule um, in Africa. And he focused on the way in which law was being used there, uh, primarily, or not, not solely, but primarily um, to also suppress those um, who were within its reach. Now, what is interesting about the idea of lawfare is its use as a political strategy in post-colonial Africa, especially, I believe, during the most recent wave of regime transitions. And Bentham, as I mentioned, was among the first to recognize the idea of lawfare, even though he never called it that. Legislation, wrote Bentham, is a state of warfare. Political mischief is the enemy. The legislator is the commander, the moral and religious sanctions his allies, punishment and rewards the forces he has under his command. Bentham observed that this system stands in much higher favor with men in general than that which is carried on by open force. He found the reason for this appeal in the economy with which it may be used and the ingenuity which it is thought to require. This economy and this ingenuity are at the heart of my research on the Gachacha jurisdictions in Rwanda. And I've witnessed both during the process of invention, which culminated in the launch of these people's courts in 2002. And this is, for instance, why I, why I went to Rwanda in 2002, to be there uh, for the very launch, to interview those who were involved in creating these institutions and the various processes, the various contentious processes involved in their making. Because, as I'll explain a little bit later on, today already we see a revisionism. Many of those... Um, who denied involvement a few years ago now claim they have been the inventor of this particular institution precisely because back then it wasn't obvious it would work. Today uh, it has been accepted by most people around the world and has been, people are gloss over the many shortcomings that do exist. Um, so today all of a sudden people come forward and do claim some responsibility. And of course this is very tricky in Rwanda because this, and this is often forgotten especially um, in the State Department here, Rwanda is an authoritarian government or ruled by an authoritarian government. This is not a nice place to be in. It's nice for Westerners. We will never really appreciate um, the depth of, of oppression. But it's really different for Rwandans living there. Um, and of course, the problem there is if you claim responsibility for the invention of a particular system and the system fails, um, this is a death sentence, essentially. And this happened to a number of people. For example, the former Minister of Justice, whom I interviewed uh, a number of times, fled uh, the country two years ago, and he's now a fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, and even though, he, and the funny or, or difficult 
voice something is that he has blood in his hands as well, and he's now hosted by the U.S. government, essentially. So Rwanda is a very, very complex place. Um, and this is something that's frequently forgotten, and this is also what, in, what inspired some of the, a um, little bit, the, the argument in this particular talk. Now, in the system of people's courts, these Gachacha jurisdictions, villages and neighbors congregate in outside locations throughout Rwanda in order to hear cases brought against accused and, and criminals. Um, sets of judges, initially 19, but it turned out it was very difficult to get them to show up um, all the time. So the number of judges has been reduced. And there also was quite a bit of corruption in the years uh, since 2002, so it has been reformed in a number of um, different pieces of legislation. But this was the very first design that existed. Uh, now, these 19 judges, they're called Inyangamugayo, which is Kenya Rwanda for persons of integrity. Um, these judges were elected by their communities, and they overhear the cases. They initially received training, legal training, that lasted uh, two weeks, and two weeks only means two meetings, four hours each. That's usually how it, how it played out. Uh, many of these judges obviously have not had any education uh, or, or mainly uh, primary uh, school education, if any. Um, now, attendees may voice corrections or additions, and information is being collected and gathered, and it's supposed to be a very participatory process. This is how it's being sold. This is how it's being received uh, in, many, uh, in many of the governments, uh, in many advanced industrialized democracies who have been funding this institution as well. Uh, and this is one of the photographs also in the pack that are circulated. This is a typical court setting. Um, this is uh, on the outskirts of Butare, Butare being the intellectual center of the country. Uh, and this is exactly what they mean by justice on the grass. This is sort of where it's a little patch of grass. Um, this is where the con this is after a meet after a Gachacha meeting. The reason why I don't have a photograph of the meeting is because it's prohibited. And we spent two months in this particular community um, witnessing three well this particular setting, which um, formed the setting for three different communities. Um, uh, administration of Gachacha proceedings uh, and. Over those two months, we have not been able to gain permission to take photographs. This is a very highly regulated affair. There's nothing participatory about it. Yeah, people show up and take part, but it's not participatory in the sense that we use the term. So this was just after one of these congregations. Uh, and this is the patch of grass where people would sit, sit down and in front of this building, which is the, um, the town hall, if you will, even though there's no town as such, but this is sort of the equivalent. Uh, on these, there's one wooden bench you'll still see, and on the left is another one. This is where the 19 judges, or, or however many showed up that day, uh, would sit. Uh, and these meetings would take place in a glaring sun, usually. They could last from two hours till six hours, and people are required to attend. And if they don't attend, um, various representatives of the central government would go from door to door and knock on these doors and uh, get people to attend. And it doesn't really require much violence, it simply requires a show of state. Not a show of force, just a show of state is enough. And people know what that means if they don't attend. And so this is some of the background. Um, so as I mentioned, this, this particular innovation, and it was really an innovation, it's very interesting, um, has received widespread attention around the world um, due to its reliance on an ostensibly also traditional practice of dispute resolution. Because going back to tradition is, is, is very chic these days. It's like something that suggests participation, something that suggests democracy, deliberation, forum, and so on. Um, and I have a couple of, of slides that can show that breaks down the support, the financial support that uh, the government has received over the years. And it goes in the millions. Um, unfortunately, much naivete surrounds the institution. While an abundance of legal 
and journalistic commentary exists um, and has assessed what I believe to be the strength and weaknesses of the Gachacha jurisdictions, no comprehensive analysis of their evolution is yet available. Uh, also, as I intimated already, existing accounts are perfunctory and frequently distort both past and present. Um, in particular, there is no reliable evidence that would suggest that this really was a traditional institution previously. Yes, it was being practiced, but it also was introduced under... It may have been practiced before the emergence of the central state in Rwanda, which was in the late 19th century, but also it was being codified already by the Belgian colonizers. So much of this is really has already stayed written all over it. There's really very little community in it, apart from the fact that the setting was a community. Also, we don't really know anything about um, the extent to which it was being used in these communities. We have very little research on this, and this has to do with the fact that the whole Great Lakes region, in particular Rwanda, um, is based on oral tradition. We don't have any other sources but oral memories. Right? And of course, as you know, oral tradition is something that's very, very difficult to deal with. Uh, Jan Wanzener at, at Wisconsin Medicine so is the foremost um, authority on all of this and also on the region. He's written a, a very important book on the methodological problems of using oral tradition. But as you can imagine, it's very, very difficult to, to get reliable evidence. There have been a couple of art articles in French, um, two or three from the early 80s, which already meant that the institution had come under the influence um, of a lot of politics. Um, so that's why I'm saying it's an ostensibly traditional institution. Um, the argument that it is traditional, of course, benefits the government because it suggests we're going back to the past, we're inclusive, we're in, again, all of that. Now, and the reasons why, why many observers uh, fail to appreciate this complexity, and, and even if you go to Amnesty reports, Human Rights Watch reports, they do focus on the immediate legal shortcomings of the legislation, which is important, and there are many shortcomings, but they don't quite appreciate what's outside of all of that. Um, and other observers who fail to recognize even that uh, are blinded by what I call, uh, in a different piece I'm still finishing, called the strategy of suffering. And I think the strategy of suffering is something that the government has pursued since the genocide, the RPF-led government. And this is becoming more and more obvious and people are slowly catching on. Uh, it has used um, the sort of the, the moral responsibility, the moral guilt that, that many governments um, have come to feel after the genocide to its advantage. And this is already an indicator. It's just the, the sums of money that are poured into Rwanda compared to other um, countries with, with comparable fates or comparable problems. Um, and this is, for instance, also like Kagame, for example, the president. He visits Harvard on an almost, almost annual basis. And the reason being that Harvard is very susceptible um, to to these kinds of visits, right? He gets very visible. Uh, people are frequently uh, uncritical. They believe as soon as they come into contact with a victim that this victim is beyond moral reproach. Um, and as Harvard, obviously, as sort of at the pinnacle um, of visibility, if you will, uh, comes in very handy in attracting more U.S. support and attracting also academic um, support and so on. So this is a very clever strategy on the part of of the Rwandan government. Also, many Western researchers are welcomed. Um, as long, doing research on the genocide is easy in Rwanda, provided you um, you have sort of like a Tutsi bend to it. And most people do. Most people believe this was a very straightforward um, setting, right? And then you actually get carried, you get, get shown around. You actually get to see all the genocide memorials and people take care that you appreciate the suffering of Tutsi, which of course deflects attention also from the fact that the RPF 
uh, was critically involved in fostering or creating conditions for the genocide. More and more evidence comes out now that the RPF ordered the assassination of um, uh, President Habyarimana at the time, and that the RPF actually launched an attack in order to provoke a genocide. There's also some evidence that suggests that the RPF didn't invade the country earlier during the genocide, even though it was clear the genocide was taking place in order to um, to increase the suffering on the part of the Rwandan population, which would then increase its moral capital internationally. Many of these things are still very murky, but um, it becomes far less or far more controversial and far less evident that this was a very straightforward affair where, um, where Tutsi were victims and, and Hutu were, were, um, were the perpetrators. So it's a very murky picture that also sheds some light on this particular invention and I think gives some credibility to the argument this is um, far less um, um, innocent institutionalization than people make it out to be. Now I, I in my work take the institutional choice uh, itself as the object of explanation. And this is drawn from the much larger work where I compare the invention of these jurisdictions with the invention of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda in Arusha and also uh, national jurisdictions in Rwanda which initially heard court cases. So this is the third, first case um, I think in history where one country simultaneously or in, in one country we have three different approaches to uh, the problem of radical evil. This is a term by, by Carlos Nido, a famous Argentine lawyer. Uh, you have uh, initially national proceedings and an international effort going, uh, being underway, and then you have supposedly local institutions as well. And we haven't really seen this uh, played out simultaneously anywhere else. Uh, and all of the institutions have been created from scratch, didn't exist before. There's a lot of invention going on. And I'm interested in the processes and the mechanisms of this invention. Who were the people involved? Why did they chose uh, one design over another? Um, and so on. Really interested in explaining all of this. And I'm going to skip a little bit around and I can leave the rest to, to the discussion. Um, and what I suggest is in the evolution of these jurisdictions, you had, well, I'm, I'm arguing that um, the evolution of these jurisdictions into an irregular system of warfare was a result of subtle intertwinings of rational action based on expectations of consequences, a logic of instrumental choice, and rational action seeking to fulfill identities based on expectations of appropriateness a logic of expressive choice. And then I further contend and, and demonstrate in the larger work, I can't do this today, that in the design, the logic of instrumental choice over time won out over the logic of expressive choice. And I'm going to illuminate a little bit what I mean by that. And, but by, by virtue of the fact that uh, instrumental choice won out, um, I believe, um, or this, I believe, resurrected in more ways than one the specter of another genocide. Um, so I'll come to lawfare in a second. That's actually sort of the heart of my talk, and again, it's a concept in progress. So my contribution, I hope, to law and the social sciences is fourfold. I introduce lawfare as a conceptually and analytically distinct type of warfare and a political strategy not previously theorized in any systematic fashion. Um, and warfare, of course, you know this better than, than anyone probably in the country, has been a long-standing subject in the social sciences, and from Hobbes to Tilly. But lawfare has been virtually absent in the literature on state building. Restating an influential aphorism, my aim is to show how law made the state and the state made law. And second, and to this end, I offer a qualitative analysis of, of lawfare in Rwanda. And this runs counter to, to most existing analyses. 
Uh, and then, of course, I, well, of course, you can't know this, but I, I advanced an interpretive analysis of, of law that integrates culture into the study of rational choice, which also explains why I went there, why I carry out participant observation uh, in other ethnographic research, and why I incorporate photographs and other things into my work as well. Um, and the reason why I think that lawfare is so important to focus upon is it, it's a more insidious way of waging war, of, of um, keeping a society in line. It's something that, talk about the rule of law is everywhere. And people are slowly realizing it's actually an empty category as well. And you know that the World Bank pours much money into this, has been over the last, has been doing so for the last decade. But the rule of law is something really that people think is desirable. And it has a certain meaning. And anything and everything in these post-conflict societies that has law in its title gets funded. There's very little real analysis of what is being done with this, this money. And this is very evident, this was evident to me, if you go to Rwanda, um, and yeah, it's, it's a relatively easy country to research as long as you don't ask any uncomfortable questions. I want people to really, you push people a little bit. Um, but you see dozens, if not hundreds, of foreigners, um, German, Dutch, French, American, British, hanging out, having a good time, driving around in huge vehicles with international money and having very little understanding of what really is going on in the country. And they have no, they have no need. It's not part of their agenda to really find out what's going on. And when they find out they're being uh, escorted around by government officials, you're being, you know, you're being shown what you're supposed to see. Uh, and very few people really understand. There's a couple of very small organizations, um, often staffed by one or two um, uh, sort of analysts. Uh, there's one Belgian organization it's called uh, Penal Reform International that has uh, someone sitting there, and he's probably the most knowledgeable person in, in the country. But many others just simply don't know um, what really works. And it's very difficult to see it at, to see at first. It's a very, it's very, um, there are very many hidden dynamics uh, that are difficult to pick up. Now, in my conceptualization, lawfare is a revolutionary strategy. Let's put this up first. It's a revolutionary strategy um, for broadcasting power. And by revolutionary, I mean the strategy aimed at the systematic and comprehensive overhaul of the foundations of politics and society. And if the example, by way of example, think of like Hitler's legal revolution, so-called legal revolution, right? I'm not interested here, I know the argument that, well, many governments, uh, many authoritarian governments rely on law and it's just a facade. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in, in using law as a facade. I'm using law in a very systematic and comprehensive manner, creating essentially a completely new system um, of law. Lawfare, in other words, is about the rule of law as a political weapon. This weapon is not deployed arbitrarily, but as a system of rules. This system comprises, for instance, constitutional enactments, ordinary legislation, presidential decrees, and other regulatory instruments. And all these instruments work in conjunction. Even though this may not have been made obvious, they all work together in a certain direction. This does not mean that, that um, other legal instruments work differently, and this may be a facade, but the idea is that there's an overall push in, in a similar direction. Uh, and this, of course, is, this is one of my main challenges. This is very difficult to really pin down what exactly is part of this concept of lawfare, and I've been grappling with this for a while. Um, and I actually was thinking recently, well, there is, of course, the, the preferred definition of war, 1,000 battle death. Can we say that it definition of lawfare might be 1,000 detainees. Uh, is this one way to, to put some kind of figure on this? Probably won't work, but I'm playing around with different ways of really um, identifying this phenomenon when it's in existence. 
Now, the crafting of rules is aimed at the reconstruction of social order qua revolution. The crafting of legal norms, institutions, principles, and procedures reconstitutes cultural, social, and material practices for the purpose of authoritarian control. This is the purpose, authoritarian control. And I believe that lawfare is regularly the product of an inability to resolve outstanding political questions. And there's an interesting quote from Martin Shapiro, um, a very influential legal scholar who's a um, social scientist, uh, and he's at, at, at Berkeley, at Bold Hall. Um, he wrote in a very classic book, not so much about lawfare, but it applies actually to, um, to this, this thing that I'm talking about. Uh, he said this, a major function of courts and many societies is to assist in holding the countryside, but providing a uniform body of national law designed to cement the alliance between conquerors and local notables and further their joint interests. And this kind of encapsulates how I think of the gachacha jurisdictions. This is not so much about restorative justice. And I do believe that some, this goes back to the idea of expressive choice, some of those involved clearly cared about that particular aspect. But I'm suggesting it became something else. Right now, and I'll illustrate this further, it is not so much about the genocide. This is simply a very convenient system to control this entire country. Because again, remember there were 12,000 courts. The country is the size of Connecticut. You have 12,000 courts. You essentially have local representatives in every single part of the country under the guise of law. Right? This is a legitimate system to come to terms with the genocide. But you also have a very interesting system of reporting back to the center what is going in on the countryside. It's a very convenient method to hold the countryside, to use Shapiro's words. This is how I think of it. And again, this is not necessarily that there aren't any other aspects involved. And of course, 12,000 court assemblies may work differently. Right? You have many local dynamics that can obviously affect this particular outcome. I'm not denying that, but I think the overall slant uh, is, is a different one. I'm just going to skip um, the empirical discussion in the interest of time. I'm just going to conclude with a couple of, of remarks. This will also still take me probably uh, seven minutes or so. And then I can, if, if you like, I can elaborate on, on the empirical evidence that, that I draw upon to, to make this claim in the question and answer period. Now, my argument um, with emphasis on the strategic uses of law um, supplements Jeffrey Herb's recent and I think path-breaking work on state formation and the broadcasting of power in, in Africa. And also Mahmoud Mamdani's first book on um, the law of indirect rule. Because a similar dynamic, I believe, attended the legalization of these Kachacha jurisdictions. In the course of the progress, uh, of the process, these concerns of, the concerns of lawyers began to compete with the, excuse me, began to compete with the concerns of um, of intellectuals in the discussion over the precise form and function of the courts. And I've termed this the great transformation. And this, excuse me, this sort of illustrates a little bit. So I believe there were genuine efforts, and I've interviewed some of these people too, like Peter Uttaramara. Um, he considers himself a left bank intellectual. He's been, he's been, exiled, in, he's been exiled in Paris. Uh, because after 1959, after the so-called Hutu Revolution, uh, many Tutsi fled the country. Many spent time in refugee camps for decades in Uganda and elsewhere. Um, others went to Europe. He spent time in Paris. Uh, and he's a very calm, very interesting figure. And, and I believe, sort of talking with, having talked with him a couple of times, that he was genuinely, he's very influential. Um, he was head of the RPF for many years. Um, and he was 
I think, genuinely interested in, in creating a, a more unified society. Um, however, on the other side, uh, the Jew Mucho uh, and, and others are from a different generation. He's an intellectual. He's probably in his late 60s, early 70s. The former Minister of Justice and others are in their late 20s, early 30s. They've been socialized differently. They've been socialized abroad. They've been socialized under Kagami's rule in Uganda, where he initially was part of uh, the head of Museveni's army. Um, so they have a different socialization. They are lawyers. They have a completely different view on things. So under their, this is where things went in a different direction. These young lawyers won out in this competition over the form and function of these courts. And it became a legal institution. It became something else. Um, and there were other attendant developments that, that, that created an institution that was much different from what others had intended at the very beginning. Um, and so the, the focus shifted from restoration to kind of retribution, right? Because, of course, many of those Rwandans who had not previously lived in Rwanda, who came with the invasion, with the invading RPF, had a much more, had a much more negative understanding of the country. And they actually were, in many respects, trying to seek retribution for the fact that they had been expelled um, 50 years earlier, almost 50 years earlier, right? So it's a completely different um, set of, of preferences. So these different logics clashed of expressive choice, um, of instrumental choice. And you might, of course, say that they also have a particular logic of expressive choice going on. They want to uh, express their particular different identities. Um, but that's sort of a, um, a subsidiary argument. Um, now, all of this like, led to my formulation of lawfare as a conceptual variable. And as such, I believe it, it illuminates the meaning of the Rechtsstaat as well. Uh, I can maybe put this up later. Uh, and uh, this meaning is frequently misunderstood in existing scholarship. Um, as I said before, like the rule of law is misunderstood. The Rechtsstaat is a, um, is a difficult concept. Because for Hans Kelsen, for example, um, Alex went, mentioned earlier that, that sort of he's interested in, in Carl Schmitt. And Hans Kelsen is another um, positivist. And, and he, he believed we should not conceive of the Rechtsstaat, which is sort of the European equivalent of the rule of law, but slightly different in focus, as a state order with a specific content. He wrote... Every state must constitute a legal order, whatever the method of its creation may be, autocratic or democratic, and whatever its content. This is the concept of the Rechtsstaat. So basically a separation of law and morals. And this is like a long-standing debate in, in legal theory. Unification of law and morals, separation of law and morals. Um, Kassanstein in Chicago writes, the rule of law has many virtues, but we should not overstate what it entails. The virtues of rules are inseparable from the vices of rules. And this is sort of the same direction in which I am headed. Um, now, in my talk, I've tried to show, without supplying much or any empirical evidence, that the rule of law functions increasingly as a political weapon. Um, I've hinted at some of the mechanisms and processes of the strategy of lawfare in what I believe is a critical case. By so doing, I've hoped to have shown that the rule of law is intimately related to the broadcasting of power in the developing world. Um, an interview I recently conducted, well, now three years ago, with Pierre Rigema, the second prime minister um, of Rwanda, who was ousted, um, illustrates um, the role of the Gachacha jurisdictions as a political weapon. And, of course, you might say he's biased, and there, there is that, obviously. But there's a lot of truth in his statement as, as well. And he says, as you can read, the jurisdictions in Rwanda are politically motivated and are not an open and accountable judicial system. Grouping the concept of the Gachacha jurisdictions and the concept of reconciliation together without addressing past abuses and ongoing grievances arising from Hutu and Tutsi conflicts may lead later to a new armed conflict and not a lasting peace. 
Um, this comment, albeit partial, illustrates the strategy of lawfare as, as I see it. Like Reguema, I find unpersuasive the conventional wisdom that the Gachacha jurisdictions represent a genuine effort in participatory justice. The potential for said jurisdictions to contribute to transitional justice is slim. Their potential to contribute to transitional injustice, by contrast, is great. The creation of the jurisdictions furthers the centralization of the state in Rwanda. It forms the latest in a hitherto neglected series of state projects in Rwanda's history. And this historical look at Rwanda also persuades me that this is just not anything that is particularly unique, but is something that is reminiscent of earlier ways of centralizing the country. Um, and sort of, you know, you can see already when, when these particular systems, these projects were put in place. And to me, like Imodogudo in Gando were also um, instituted by this current government. Uh, this is like a compulsory villagization project, as you can see. Very similar to something that Nyere um, instituted in, in Tanzania. Uh, and this was compulsory. People didn't want to move. That There are no villages uh, in Rwanda, even though in, in, in the very beginning I used a quote from a different author who talked about villages. Villages don't exist. Um, so now, ostensibly in the interest of security, people are forced into villages, as opposed to dwelling all over um, the very hilly countryside. Well, it's a good idea, you think, right? The argument is, well, we can protect them better because there have been many um, roving bandits, to use Mensa Olsen's phrase, uh, in the aftermath of the genocide, coming from the Congo, what's now the DRC, into Rwanda, right? And they, they slaughtered and killed um, many victim survivors. You think, okay, villagers, great. We can defend them better. This is a very interesting argument. Well, of course, what this neglects to say is, A, the process, which was violent, but also, secondly, the fact that you can also, of course, control villagers better if you are the ruling party or the ruling government, right? It's a very convenient way to keep control again. Um, and in Gando, sort of our solidarity camps where people have to, runners have to attend these camps and also those alleged perpetrators or perpetrators who were released in these jurisdictions, they have to attend these, these camps where they're being indoctrinated, like how to think of their society and they have to take up different values and they, they get said that there's no division between Hutu and Tutsi and ethnic identities don't exist and a lot is made in Rwanda, especially by the government, of the fact that Europeans invented these categories. And there's a standing argument that, of course, the Belgians introduced the passport, and there was the stamp, Hutu or Tutsi, and this sort of solidified identities. But, and this has been very prominent, and many scholars pick up on that. And this is true to an extent, but ethnic categories and identities existed prior to the arrival of, of Europeans. And this is often forgotten, largely on account of the fact that everyone feels guilty for the genocide. Um, so we obviously do not want to confront uh, any supposed victims, even though the RPF, the English-speaking RPF, uh, and their um, and sort of the, the people they brought along with them, did not really suffer. Those people who suffered were Rwandans in Rwanda, most of whom speak French. So already you have a linguistic divide among Tutsi in Rwanda between those who suffered really for decades under authoritarian rule from the genocide and who now suffer again. There's not necessarily uh, they don't necessarily see eye to eye these groups if you want to generalize for a second. Um, I'm almost done, I promise. And I believe, like, more specifically, the transition from, from expressive choice to instrumental choice um, has satisfied the imperative of state building at the expense of the imperative of nation building. Um, and I typically, this is a very simple distinction, but I think it's, it's an important, I'm sorry. 
it's, it's an important one, um, and I think they're often conflated. And in a different article that I'm currently revising, um, I've, I've tried to conceptually um, point out what is this thing about nation building as opposed to, to state building. Um, and I believe in Rwanda, state building, again, the size of Connecticut, you have all these porous borders, you have violent countries around you. Uh, it makes sense to decentralize the state. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and state building is important, obviously, but this does not detract, detract from the fact that this is not necessarily what the country, per se, domestically um, needed. Um, like by sacrificing the imperative of nation building for the imperative of state building, the RPF has widened rather than narrowed the gulf between state and society in post-genocidal um, Rwanda. And among other things, I, I hope mine is a contribution or will become a contribution to one of the oldest research programs in social sciences, the formation of national states. And of course, you have someone in two weeks speak um, whose um, um, prize-winning book discussed exactly this topic in, in early modern Europe and in China. Um, so it's a very established um, tradition on the formation of national states, and I try to contribute to it by focusing on the law as one particular element that is, that is frequently ignored. Um, now, increasingly, I believe Charles Tilly's famous aphorism that war made a state and the state made war is insufficient for capturing the dynamics of state building. Um, today, I've drawn our attention to an alternative and more insidious logic of state building. In my work, I try to show how, in the case of Rwanda, law made the state and the state made law. And such, I hope, is my contribution um, to, to the literature. This is just briefly a summary of, of the argument or the, the causal relationships that, that, that I believe um, exist. And I believe that the jurisdictions have evolved into an irregular system of warfare, to use Bentham's term, that was designed for the purpose of intimidating the countryside rather than reconciling it. Uh, and more generally, my research demonstrated that the rule of law can make and break transitions from authoritarian rule, and this counterintuitive finding forces us to confront the dark side of democracy and the rule of law. And absent this, the political economy of lawfare may spiral in Africa and elsewhere into a political economy of warfare. Thank you. Okay. Um, yes, because you have to run. I was. Uh, <coughs> I see where you're going with the, with the state building side. I was just curious um, if you could explain. Uh, does this transfer also uh, into two other areas of, of the period of state collapse? Uh, uh, does, is, this, is this applicable in different kinds of settings or circumstances? Of course, you didn't talk as much about the genocide itself, but I was mm -hmm. kind of curious about the symbolic and not practical intervention of norms as well. I, I'm not an expert on the genocide there, but I, I seem to recall that it, as it started that in the areas where there were UN personnel uh, representing in effect norms and rule of law, in effect, that the genocide was not happening right around there, that people were actually going to those places and, and finding some, that there's a pur purposeful tactic to avoid carrying out a, a genocide in areas where there were international presence uh, at the time. So I'm kind of curious, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but that was my, my sense of it. Does this apply at the, at the time of state collapse in terms of tactics, and are there other intervening variables that can serve to represent the norms of community um, in times of actual warfare that can affect these outcomes? Okay, um, let me take the first question. Um, I'm not quite sure that during the genocide the presence of UN forces 
represented so much the presence of legal norms as just the show of force that um, simply um, intimidated those who came with machetes and other things. And also, if you remember the, the famous um, killing of the thir 13 Belgian peacekeepers, uh, UN peacekeepers, it didn't really deter anyone either, the, the fact that, that a couple of UN troops were there. It, it had a, a marginal difference, really. And I think it's, it had less to do with, with law than uh, and simply like a, initially a deterrent effect. Uh, the second question, I'm not entirely sure I follow. If you could maybe rephrase it again. The contribution of, of communities to, to outcomes? Well, I'm just, I'm just wondering if, well, I, I actually hit it my main point, I think I was trying to get at, which is, is there a deterrent value of norms in the context of state collapse? Uh, and does this factor into the tactics that, that you might actually see going on? Yeah. You're, you're, you're saying that the deterrent value was actually much more functional than any kind of normative content. Well, it's it's complicated. What I like in another piece on on state formation, I believe the inculcation of legal norms is, is important and will go a long way. However, it's not as simplistic as people make it out to be. Um, and, and sort of what I suggested in that research was that you have to develop stakes that people can wrap their head around, and you actually may have to uh, enter into really uncomfortable relationships with with various people who have blood at their hands. Um, so I think norms in the long run and legal institutions will have an effect. However, if you have no if you were legal tradition as of yet it'll be very hard to see these particular consequences. So it'll be a long-term process, and I think this is what... I believe law has, you know, like this is a structuring effect that, that, people, that creates, you know, the simplistic argument, or the conventional argument, that creates certainty, you can develop trust, confidence in institutions. I think all of that is, is the case. If there's any deterrent value, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And, and what this research is trying to share, show is also that, well, the law and legal norms cut two ways, right? Uh, it, can, it can be beneficial to a society, but you can also use it in a completely different sense. And the fact that this is so insidious, it, it doesn't quite look as threatening as if you display open force. But I believe the effects are, are as, uh, as uh, detrimental, if you will. I'm not sure if this answered your question, but... up again. The first question was whether or not these, in these settings, different issues were discussed as well. By way of an aside, I should mention that even though they were launched in 2002 in a couple of pilot projects, these jurisdictions only got underway properly a few years later, and they have been stalled a number of times. As you may have heard, there have been presidential and parliamentary elections, um, which you know, this is again problematic. The EU, for example, praised these elections as being a step towards democracy, which is complete nonsense. They aren't at all whatsoever. And so it's very evident. And this is exactly how these myths get perpetuated. The EU puts a stamp on it, right? Um, and of course, this is like reason enough for other governments to maybe go along and, and fund 
certain uh, reconstruction projects. In the context of these elections, because they, there was a potential for violence, many are, the operation of these jurisdictions was, was shut down for essentially a year. Then they started up again, and they're currently down again. Um, so there haven't actually been, there have been sessions, and there have been re- people have been released as well, but there hasn't quite been as much as, as much activity. Did they dis- discuss any other issues? Yes and no. And again, this depends on the dynamics of each particular setting. Like as one session I attended, for instance, where you had once the regular session um, concluded, and this was at the at the evidence gathering stage, I believe. There were different stages as to what these jurisdictions have to do. Um, since people had gathered, the community decided, well, let's have a regular gachacha. And that was the case of stolen firewood. So one of the, um, the community members had stolen firewood. And the community was deciding, well, what to do? You know, how, how should he be punished, if at all? So all of a sudden, you have like this bleeding into another procedure, which in that case might be a good thing. And there are some arguments in, on the government side as well that if this works out, maybe we can carry this over and we can regularize it, and which is, you know, a positive aspect. But I'm not quite sure that that the negative aspect necessarily gets gets uh, sort of it's stronger than a negative aspect. But uh, otherwise, other issues discussed, I'm. Not really. I mean, it's really, and sort of this goes to the second question as well. How are there any any records that the government keeps? Well, what what you see often is you see like traveling units from the government dispatched from the ministry um, who visit all these communities and who are present as well. And this is exactly another subtle uh, way of intimidation, right? Like the various settings we attended in in Gishambu, um, you have like three or four personalities from the capital coming down, like a three-hour ride. And this is kind of a big deal. And people are just by the presence of them. They have proper clothes. They're not as impoverished as, by the way, like before the genocide, um, Rwanda had, uh, was sort of at the bottom of the Gini coefficient ranking in terms of like, poverty and, and inequality. Um, so it's a very poor country. Uh, and just the presence of these government officials you know, creates a certain... A, a certain um, and, and by these, by, via this route, data is gathered on the various communities, and you actually you can discuss this with them. They realize that a certain community is not really pulling as as fast as they should in, in terms of establishing this, so they're going to you know send detachment and they're going to put things in place. So data is, is being gathered, but I'm not quite sure how systematic they were in terms of like real hard data. Um, this is not necessarily obvious, and much of it is also hidden. It's not really that clear. Because people will, you know, it's, it's very hard. I'm not sure if you've done research in an authoritarian setting. It's, it's not that easy to actually get information and to really know if it's credible or not. It's, it's kind of very difficult. So I haven't seen any hard data, like any systematic data across these units, uh, these different court cases, but I'm not quite sure. There might be some. But there are, defi- there are definitely centralized attempts at, at uh, controlling the ways in which these, these procedures evolve. Um, yes? And I'm wondering what makes Rwanda so critical with respect to your 
Okay. Let me take the, first, the last question first. I'm actually headed to Cambodia this summer. Um, I spent my sabbatical last year in Japan where I was doing research on the Tokyo Tribunal. And I'm now going to Cambodia in the summer because, as you know, the Khmer Rouge trials are getting underway this summer. And I'm there for the very same reason, to witness the evolution of this particular institution. Of course, Cambodia is a completely different scenario. The genocide happened a long time ago. Um, and you also realize that there was a lot of contention over the creation of this tribunal. It was delayed. There was sort of UN and, and the Cambodian government couldn't see eye to eye. But it certainly has a of international involvement, and really there on the face of it, this is an, an effort to really come to terms with the genocide. It may not actually go a long way in terms of a tribunal, but this is, I think, a genuine attempt to, um, to redress, essentially, past injustice, whereas in Rwanda, this is not the case. And the same in Australia as well. These are some issues to, to come to terms with uh, the supposed or what people say is a genocide of, uh, of stolen children, for example, and these kinds of issues, right? Stolen generation in Australia. And I think these are, these are government-led efforts. So in that sense, there's a similarity. But I think there's no effort at overhauling society, if you will, right? And this is what I said. There's an effort that reconstitutes, like, the foundation of society as well, the way society is run. And that's how I, I see it. Of course, the question is legitimate. Like, how do you really know what's there? It's an assumption, a hypothesis. Um, I think it's an, it's an assumption. I don't really use that language of like hypotheses, uh, but I guess it's an inductively derived um, assumption, if you want to put a label on it, that I, that I hope to substantiate via different, different types of, of data, ethnographic and otherwise. And of course, you will never quite know if this is a story because you, know, you never really um, know if this is what it is. Uh, we can only like, you know, present a plausible argument and hope that it remains, uh, remains valid when implied empirically. Um, there was another question? I can't remember. Uh, that. Yeah, Lugard, oh, Lugard, yeah. yeah. You don't see the, the connection. Um, okay, do you want to elaborate on Lugard? Well, I, all I know is that he left India impressed by the way the British, I don't know, wanted to adopt this rule, a country of one billion, and, and came to not It wasn't? They were not, they were not building uh, a nation uh, the way I see it. They were building the empire. British They're building a state, right? They're building an empire. The British Empire, right. But, I mean, they were not, they didn't see the individuals as their, uh, that they ruled as moral equals or anything like that. But that does, that they still ruled, didn't they? The idea is here they broadcasted power. In a particular way, and that for me is a similarity. And Lugard, of course, the idea of indirect rule is that we have a scarcity of resources. The same applied in Rwanda. Rwanda and Burundi, at the time of the colonial period, were governed by nine um, by nine foreign officials. The entire the entire two countries. There were nine Europeans based there that governed the entire place. It was indirect rule initially. Of course, indirect rule doesn't mean you don't have any interest in this particular country. You do. You just wanted to govern it differently. And the idea here was to create a system of reliable locals who will then exercise power, exercise authority on your behalf, right? And this is a way of indirect rule. And this is exactly what I think happened 
Uh, and then sort of you slowly co-opt these individuals, remove their ties with their own society, and this is what happened under Belgian rule in Rwanda as well. Like Tutsis were co-opted initially, and then things changed later on. But they were governing for Belgians, essentially. And there were certain benefits to all of that, and this, they were co-opted. And I believe the same happened here as well, to a degree, that the central government co-opted local communities or individuals in these communities to govern on their behalf, under the guise of doing justice, right? but also supplying information, keeping ties with the central government. Um, and I'm not quite sure that necessarily all locals that, that served um, the British um, in, in Africa weren't necessarily aware exactly what they were doing. They were often, this is what Herbst points out as well, uh, of course we think this was like a one-way relationship, the uh, Europeans um, sort of exploited Africans. We also now from, know from Mamdani, among others, that well, Africans are very clever at also creating certain loopholes and creating certain uh, advantages for themselves in this particular system, right, which were then handed down to their, com also not handed down, but they were then certain reserve powers, if you will, were applied to their communities. This is exactly the same. It wasn't just substitute politically for commercial interests. That's exactly the point. It's not about justice, I believe, or at least only to a minor part about justice. It's not really about law either. Law happens to be the instrument. It's a political weapon, as I said. That's how I see it. And again, this, the, the empirical discussion is a little bit more subtle because, again, there's variation and it depends on the context. But overall, I think this is precisely what happened. Because, again, like you said, it doesn't look like it. Even you used the term that this wasn't about justice or about law, which suggests that, you know, it's just kind of internalized um, what, what this is ostensibly about. So you're arguing that any talk of law and justice is cheap, in a sense? No, not necessarily. Again, it depends. You mean in Rwanda or where? Well, again, you can't, you can't, you can't simplify it. Or you have to see, like, who is doing the talking and to what end? What is the, what are the backgrounds? And this is exactly the, the problem I have. You touched like on a weak spot in the entire like research design. You know, how can you really make sure this is lawfare? What does it take to demonstrate lawfare? And I've been grappling with this. Right? Does it? Do you have to focus on on intentions, on beliefs, and then how do you actually figure that out? Or do you look at ends being deployed only? Or do you use both or, or something else? And this is exactly what, if you have any ideas, this is what I would like to hear. This is like very difficult. Again, 1,000 battle death is easy. 1,000 detainees, I don't know. Is there something else that actually would make us see that this is lawfare? As opposed to simply the, the occasional use of law in order to repress dissidents or whatever else. You know, how do we, how can we really substantiate this argument, and this is something that's, that's difficult. I'm using it by various indirect means, by looking at history, by creating this, you know, put it in a, in a series of other historical projects and, and various other means, and looking at, for example, human rights abuses that you see over the course of time um, that have been committed and disappearances and so on. It sort of, it becomes part, it's a composite, essentially. And, but I don't have any direct relevance that would suggest, well, this was really planned. There's like a decree, internal secret decree, that suggests we build a system of lawfare. Doesn't exist. Yeah, I guess you took on. When I heard when you put the slide up first, it occurred to me that nothing on that really suggests at the very end that it has to be authoritarian control. When I read all of that, mm -hmm. and then at the bottom you finish with the purpose of authoritarian control, why does it have to be authoritarian? I don't see anything then that's not compatible with 
the elaboration of a democratic rulemaking process, right? And we have rules, we have courts, we have decrees, we have legislation, we have regulatory instruments, all these other things. But we have a certain amount of self-government to sort of direct that or have a reflect public will or something like that. I don't see any particular reason why the expansion of law and state building has to result in authoritarianism. I don't disagree with you, mm. it does frequently, and post-colonial states for lots and lots of reasons that may be so. But then the causal chain is different, right? It's not so much the expansion of the state, it's you know, ethnic groups yeah. want to eliminate one another and sort of capture the state, right? But it seems to me that building the law doesn't necessarily have to be like a law version of warfare, it could also just be the law. It could just be yeah. sort of democratically controlled. So I'm not sure, I mean, maybe I'm just yeah. missing it, but it's not, it's not clear to me anything in that slide is incompatible with democratic control, so I don't know how you get to authoritarianism at the end. Yeah. And then I also have a sort of small question for your slide about contemporary villagization in the last one yeah. at the end. Um, is, that, is that essentially sort of an African version of the Hamlet relocation program that the British tried in Malaya and that we tried in Vietnam against the NLF? That's that's the first thing that popped into my mind. Yeah. Question entirely from what yeah, yeah. But that's the first thing that sort of I thought of when I saw villagization. I thought, yeah. wow, that's what we tried to do against the DC, and it didn't really work. I actually, I'm not familiar with those two cases. If you have any oh. references, me, I'd love to read up on them. Uh, it, it might be similar. I'm not familiar with it, unfortunately. Oh, okay. But. Because because the British to, to prevent the communists from sort of pulling apart sort of yeah. villagers all over the peninsula, the British condensed them into villages to protect them, and then. We tried to do that within the 50s, and then we tried to do the same thing in the mm. Littoral in the South in the 60s, right? We tried to sort of put South Vietnamese villagers into, or sort of peasants into villages we could protect and mm. made free fire zones around them and stuff like that. And it didn't work if BC would come in at night. Yeah. And that's what that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. It was a sort of effort, just like what you were saying with state building, right? You sort of take all these disparate people, you pack them in there, and you put an institution, in your case, these courts sort of on top of them to provide a sort of feel of stateness to mm. them. And that's, that's what we tried. It didn't work very well for us. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I, want, I, yeah, I wonder if yeah, I wonder if there's similar intention. I mean, again, there's, there's different explanations the government gives for this practice, and people have had their doubts. Not just me; other people have had their doubts as well. But as to your first question, you're certainly right. I mean, this is exactly what happens if you use law, the law in a democratic system. If you build the American state, any other state, it looks fairly similar. But the point is exactly that. That's exactly it, right? You can do the same thing, and it doesn't lead to a democratic outcome. That's the point. It looks as if it's just, it's like, it's like very appealing, right? You do all of this, yeah, this is great. We've seen this many times over. But you can also do this, and it leads to a completely different outcome. And yet the, and yet the process is, is almost identical, right? You enact a statute. You think, okay, enactment of statute in parliament. This is great, right? Like, procedures are involved. Well, it, so the, the dice were, were cast previously, before all of that. There is no participation in Parliament in, in Rwanda, right? This is exactly the point. It looks like this is something going towards, towards a polity that we can recognize, that looks just like us, right? As opposed to authoritarian rule in other, uh, in other eras. I think I should have mentioned this. This is what's interesting. This is different from previous ways of ruling authoritarically, autocratically, just with the, the, the sheer de deploy, deployment of force in Indonesia or elsewhere. This is more subtle. It doesn't look like it's so bad, right? This is the point here. But don't, don't you have to change your call story then? Because I, I thought you were sort of arguing that something like state building a third world sort of leads to authoritarianism. No, no, no. I no. think that's not a bad call to change, but now it seems you're sort of undercutting that. I mean, it seems, don't you, isn't your story more sort of about like ethnic conflict, sort of undermining the ability of the state to be fair, hence leading to authoritarianism no. and ethnic capture? No. Is that what you really know? No. Okay. That's the thing. My, my story, my story is, is a very narrow one, right? It's, it's a very narrow one. It's just one subset of authoritarian rule will look this way. Not every effort at state building, not every talk about law and justice 
will have a negative outcome. No, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying it may well happen. And we are not prepared for recognizing that. And but is let the me independent variable different than what you're spending your time on? Should we come back to other things like ethnic conflict or whatever? But I think there's like tons of people who do all of that. You know, what do I have to say about <laughs> about any of that? <laughs> you know? Look, this is, again, this is something that's, that's controversial, but I do believe that the larger argument has implication elsewhere, too. Um, some are obvious. One is controversial, of course. But like customary law, this goes back to colonialism. This was a very similar effort at lawfare, like by way of indirect rule. You create all these really, these, these processes. It's a procedural way of, of governing the world. Rules and procedure. Not arbitrary. Like, like to take Zaire under Mobutu. This was arbitrary rule. Right? Neo-patrimonialism, arbitrary. This is one way of, of governing autocratically. But there are other ways, and that's what I'm trying to, to figure out here. Ways that are much harder to recognize. Um, okay, customary law, colonialism, apartheid, another such system. And I wrote my PhD about apartheid, legal norms, institutions, how the system evolved. Very same way, a very, very complicated system. Um, Jim Crow, I would suggest, exactly the same, lawfare. Very complicated system, very sophisticated. Um, but very, the very same ends, the same definition applies, I think. Uh, and then perhaps, some might argue, I'm not entirely sure, the US uh, A Patriot Act, right? You could say that, you could say, I'm not suggesting that, I, that I'm doing this, or you should, that this also was aimed, uh, this was a revolutionary strategy, aimed at the reconstitution of, um, of the way things are being done. And, you know, it kind of is borne out by, by some of the evidence, at least. I wouldn't necessarily put it in the same category, but I think this illustrates, well, at least to me, it illustrates the the applicability of the concept. This is not anything about ethnic conflict as such or anything about Rwanda or Africa. This, I think, is a very particular way of governing society um, that, again, is, is just not as obvious, not as, not as apparent. Uh, hmm? This question actually follows directly on, on Bob. I have two questions. I guess um, I'm wondering about the boundaries of the concept of lawfare and what is not lawfare. Mm -hmm. And it seems, everything seems to turn on A, those purposes may not be conscious. They may not be sort of intentional purposes. Um, and I'm wondering whether there's a purpose criterion or there's an outcome criterion. What if you have lawfare for 10 years, you create a legal system and so on, and that sort of evolves or matures into some kind of democracy? Mm -hmm. Then do we, after the fact, say it was still lawfare or not? And so, and then related to this, I guess it seems to me that the danger here is that the concept applies almost everywhere. Um, and it reminds me a lot of Foucault on governmentality. This is exactly the kind of thing Foucault was talking about. And, and um, so what is, what is not lawfare and how is this, um, how can you sort of bring some control to the concept? Mm -hmm. the, the other question I had is, is what are the alternatives? You, you mentioned several times in your talk that what the Rwandan government is doing makes a lot of sense. And you can create mm -hmm. order and you can sort of establish control and so on. Um, and I'm not, it's not obviously what they might have done differently that would be viable in that context. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering here about whether you're not letting the best be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you would have a flourishing liberal democracy in Rwanda, but that's not really realistic. It's maybe the best they can do under the circumstances. Why sort of condemn it? Right. Okay. Um, what is not lawfare? Well, let me take the, the purpose and outcome criteria. You ask, okay, if we have a setting in which there was lawfare for a while, then it's a flourishing liberal democracy. Do we still call it lawfare? Yeah, I think we should. That's why apartheid. Like my, my research was on the transition, the, the role of legal norms and institutions in transition to and from apartheid. The same goes for, for <coughs> Nazi Germany and post-war Germany. I actually believe, and I've argued, the fact that you had a certain legal tradition in both countries facilitated the transition to democratic rule later on. 
So this is, is some answer to your argument too. But I would still call apartheid an instance of lawfare. It doesn't mean that we can't have a more or less successful, not yet consolidated, but you know, more or less successful democracy in South Africa now. But I think we can still describe this particular period as lawfare. You know, it's a strategy. Like the same we might, any, any military strategy we deploy, just because a certain strategy was deployed in the First World War doesn't mean it carries on today. It's a strategy. That, that's how I see it, at least. But before the advent of democracies, then let's say in the 1700s and so on, all states were doing this, right? Was lawfare then pervasive at that time, and now it's much more the exception than, than the rule? Yes or no? I mean, I do agree that this was being done, but I think in many instances, the ruthless repression you found in early modern Europe or, in, or later in, in Europe and elsewhere was predominantly brought about by force and by military might rather than by way of law. I think law was an afterthought. And I think what I'm suggesting is here sort of a, the position has switched. You wage lawfare and then sort of war if you can't find any other way. That's what I'm suggesting in Rwanda as well. Because if the Rwandan government would, would openly uh, do this by way of force, uh, international funding would also dry up very quickly. There would be condemnation. This whole reservoir of, of goodwill would, have, would dry up very quickly as well. So I think lawfare was probably going on earlier as well, but I think it wasn't the predominant mode of changing society. Uh, it, as I said, revolutionary strategy, if you take a look at the French Revolution, I think that revolutionary strategy was, was predicated on, on other means rather than law. I think it came into it, but that's how I would distinguish it. But your question, what is not lawfare? Um, it's hard, but I think for me the, the, the defining character, or not the, but one important purpose is, uh, the defining characteristic is uh, the, that the end be authoritarian control. Um, and I think it's, it's relatively easy to distinguish lawfare from, from other, in I'm not sure if you can think of an example where you say, well, this is this lawfare as well, and I could tell you why I think it wouldn't be or it would. Because I, 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 I grappled with the question as well, and I, I, I don't necessarily have like a very strict or, or sharp like, definition or cutoff. It's, it's well, the Patriot Act presumably is not yeah. the end of authoritarian control. That may be the <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, maybe the effect. I don't know. I'm not sure that's the intention. Right? It, it, that's, I guess I'm, I'm easy yeah. with the category of purpose as the criteria. Okay. This is, yeah, I've been grappling. Is it sort of, should I focus on purpose or, like you said, outcomes or means or what, what should be more important than others? Or should it be a triangulation of these three different things? That's exactly what I'm not quite figure out. I mean, are there certain indicators that, that would really help, that would tell me, okay, it exists, it doesn't exist? If you, this is exactly what I'm trying to figure out, the operationalization of this concept. So I think the concept is useful and it does apply and it captures a different slice of reality than many other concepts. So I do think there's something new. I just haven't yet figured out a good way, because I can do it easily in Rwanda, because I have a very rich study. I can, I can demonstrate why it works there. But to actually make it travel, um, I have more problems. And, and I personally would not consider the US Patriot Act to fall within lawfare. Um, but whether or not the purpose was authoritarian control, um, I have a definition of authoritarian control. Maybe we can, this might be, um, might tell us a little bit more. It's hard to say. It, I think it, it, it depends how you define. I've got to teach one thing. Sorry. Thanks for coming. I appreciate your, your comments. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I think it depends, depends on how you define authoritarian as to whether or not you say the Patriot Act, um, you know, falls within it or not. Um, I think it, it, I personally think it doesn't fit in. And it sort of also pushes the discussion in, in the wrong direction as well because people get heated about this particular topic too. But, um.
Uh, I'm not sure if I have an answer, really. I don't really have a good, question, a good answer to the question as to. We'll talk more afterwards. Okay. <laughs> yes? Um, I think if I remember correctly, you had said during your discussion that um, you rely on a positive legal model, positive legal models. And my question is, is that, I mean, I really didn't realize I'm not positive. Uh, <coughs> but, if you are deriving from positive legal models, how we can even raise this question of um, of authoritarian intent, and if that question has any meaning, because looking at the definition of you know, the criteria for lawfare, um, I could, for instance, put under there um, U.S. sentencing guidelines. I mean, that's you know an example. Of, no, you couldn't. Not under my definition. Well, no. It, I mean, you, the, the first the first three boxes. Well, almost any law. well, that's the point. It's not just the first three, it's all boxes. That's the point, right? All of these things have to be present for, it's some, for something to be called lawfare. And sentencing guidelines are not a system of rules. They are one rule within a system. So it, under my definition, it wouldn't qualify. It's, that's a very easy case. But sorry, I interrupted you. Well, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, I guess you know, the concept of ascribing authoritarian purposes, I mean, it's just other comments, other questions raising. Mm. I'm not quite sure I understand your comment about the positive tradition, and I think I, I may have misspoken or it, it wasn't clear. I don't necessarily draw on the tradition. I, I do bring the discussion back to the particular insight that that law can be devoid devoid of morals, right? And this is sort of what comes out of the positive tradition, out of Kelsen, and there's Adrian Hard, and there's a debate, Hard and Fuller, Fuller disagreeing and so on. I'm not quite sure. I don't necessarily even enter the debate in this particular project. It's sort of, you know, it just reminds... Uh, the reason why I put up these slides or these definitions is to remind us of that particular fact, that the rule of law is not necessarily, or not in all definitions and all understandings, a desirable thing. It's simply a tool. It's nothing else. It can be filled with any content you like, according to some. Of course, others disagree. But if you could maybe elucidate your point as to what... No, I, I think you actually answered the question. Oh, okay. I think that the problem was if... It would, it would, be, it would be more difficult for somebody who was a start because the question... Purpose are more difficult, but I think yeah. if, if you're merely referencing the, that's the, right, yeah. then, then actually it makes sense. Yeah, but that, that's all I'm doing, exactly. Yeah. Why do you call this uh, the rule of law rather than rule of violence? And uh, another question is whatever you call it, uh, I think law can be uh, political weapon in many circumstances in the US. As I said, my, again, there's a long-standing discussion. People disagree. I personally believe that the rule of, the rule of law and the Rechtsstaat idea are slightly different. I think more people believe that the rule of law is imbued with a certain moral compass, if you like. Uh, but that's not necessarily how I see it. Um, so rule of law, I think, again, like the Rechtsstaat could, could, you know, could be a positive thing or a negative thing. That's how I see it. That's why I call it the rule of law as well. And, and also, the background of this is also the way in which um, rule of law 
Actually, let me do this. Let me do this. I mentioned this goes back to the positivist argument as well. If you'll indulge me, I don't know if, you, if people have to leave. Two minutes or so. Um, if, let me just, this will, I think, help us a little bit. I mentioned before there was this debate at Harvard Law School in the 50s between two legal scholars. There was H.L.A. Hart, he was a legal positivist, and Lorne Fuller. Hart believed there was a separation of law and morals. Morals are never part of any definition of law. Lon Fuller disagreed. And Lon Fuller derived this insight from a German positivist who later turned around, Gustav Radbruch. Radbruch, after the Second World War, after Holocaust, he put forth the argument that, based on his experience of Nazi law, if law lacks moral content, it ceases to be law. Without morality, there is no law. It's something else. Hart disagreed. Now, these are Fuller's principles. Like, for him, for law to be moral, it has to look like this. And this brings me back to your discussion of the rule of law. If you look at this, all of these things um, are essentially relevant in Rwanda as well. You have all of this. And this is what's so worrisome. This is why I call it rule of law as well. This is something that many people who, who believe in sort of the importance of morality actually subscribe to, right? And this is why I believe we can talk about the rule of law in this particular sense. And these are the, the, some of these things are exactly the principles that you find in, in rule of law promotion projects funded by USAID or other, other institutions. This is what they focus on, transparency and these kinds of things. Uh, no ex post facto law, all these kinds of principles. And all of that is kind of, is kind of present in Rwanda as well, right? Laws were general, they were promulgated, they were not retroactive, they were clear, they're not contradictory, um, they did not demand the impossible, all of that. But you can accomplish all of this and supposedly have a, a moral uh, legal system, if you like, and you can yet do despicable things with them. This sort of partially, I think, answers your question. For me, the rule of law is not as, as, normatively, um, as normatively charged as... as for many others. For me, it's a more neutral category. Like, like Cass Sunstein. That's why I put up both the, the Rechtsstaat idea and the rule of law as well. So apartheid law is general. Yeah. Uh -huh. Exactly. Exactly. Jesse, yeah. I think we've got to call it quits. We do change classes at the half hour, and that's why people had to leave a little earlier. Thank you very much. It's great Thank to you. have you here. Thanks very much for coming. I appreciate it.